Will you take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Daniel in the Old Testament? It's January, and uh, we have an exciting um, announcement to make as far as our Bible reading is concerned, but I'll make it in light of the first couple of verses of Daniel chapter 8. Daniel chapter 8. But turning your Bibles to Daniel chapter 8, we do have to finish this book. I don't want to feel like we're rushing through it, but there's no way in the world we're going to grasp everything that's here. But the one thing about the book of Daniel is it is a book that tells us about world history. Not just a few words, not just a few years of world history, but Daniel goes back and he gives us uh, empire after empire after empire after empire and takes us all the way to the second coming of Christ. And, of course, in all of that, we have to deal, I, I hate to do it, but we have to deal with the Antichrist. And uh, so um, that, that's, uh, that, that's a little, that's a little uh, hiccup that's coming based on what God's promise is going to be when His Son returns. And, uh, but, but I love the world history that Daniel has given to us. And we're going to begin at Daniel chapter 8, verses 1 and following. Daniel chapter 8, verse 1. In the third year of the reign of King Belshazzar, or Belshazzar, a vision appeared to me, to me, Daniel, after the one that appeared to me the first time. Now, obviously, you and I know that if we are looking at this passage of Scripture for the very first time, you and I know that we're at a disadvantage because we're, we're kind of going into the middle of the book. And in order to us, for us to properly understand this, it would be wise for us to look at the whole book, to read it from beginning to end, to put it all together in perspective so that we understand a little bit more of what Daniel is talking about. I love historical references. I, I wasn't a big on history when I was a kid, but I love historical references because they prove the reliability of God's Word. When all of the history that we have in Daniel and in the rest of the Bible matches with what we know about secular history, what we know about true history, the Bible is the most reliable history book you and I are ever going to read. And so it's important for us to understand that this is a perfect example of that. Uh, I won't get into that because we've dealt with that, but Belshazzar was the last king of, of, uh, of Babylon. And, and for years and years and years, just, just to briefly share it without giving you the whole story, for years and years and years, secular history didn't have any record of King Belshazzar. And then we finally found out that Belshazzar was indeed, was indeed the last king of Babylon. And so history, you know, we had no secular information. We only had the Bible to go on. But that happens so much of the time. So much of the time. Well, do this with me for just a second so that you and I can be sure we're on the same page. Daniel chapter 1, verse 1 begins where it says, In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, who was it? Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And Daniel was taken with many, many other captives. That's in the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, the first, the reign of Nebuchadnezzar. 
Then I want you to go to chapter 2. Now in the second year, verse 1, now in the second year of Nebuchadnezzar's reign, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams and his spirit was so troubled that his sleep left him. And you'll remember at that time, Daniel gave us an outline of world history because God had given Nebuchadnezzar a dream that dealt with world history. Then look at chapter 3. Nebuchadnezzar is the king who makes this great image. And Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are thrown into the fiery furnace. Remember? Then go to chapter 4, verse 4, chapter 4, verse 1. Nebuchadnezzar is the king who has this dream of this huge tree representing Babylon, the kingdom of Babylon. Then go to chapter 5. Because between chapter 4 and chapter 5, you have many, 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 many years where Belshazzar's father, Nabonidus, was originally the king at that time, but he didn't want to spend any time being the king, so he set up his son as the king. That's where the confusion was in secular history. So Belshazzar, chapter 5, verse 1, the king made a great feast. For a thousand of his lords and drank wine in the presence of the thousand. And you'll remember that he received the handwriting on the wall. Where that very night the Bible said that his kingdom was going to fall. And it was going to be destroyed by the Medes and the Persians. And look at verse 30 of chapter 5. That very night Belshazzar, king of the Chaldeans, that's the king of the Babylonians, was slain, and Darius the Mede received the kingdom, being about 62 years old. And Darius was working for Cyrus the king. He moved in first. Cyrus then came in and kind of cleaned everything up. And Cyrus was the ruler after Darius the Mede did his work. But the combined kingdoms of the Medes and the Persians had just begun. Now, chapter 6 and I'm only doing this to help you put this together. In chapter 6, the Bible says Darius uh, was fooled by a plan to get rid of Daniel. And Daniel was thrown into the lion's den. Okay? Now, chapter 7 goes back to Belshazzar. So we go back 20 years to Belshazzar. In the first year of Belshazzar, the king of Babylon, Daniel had a dream. And now he's given more information about world history and the kingdoms to come. And then in chapter 8, we go back again to Belshazzar. And the Bible says, In the third year of the reign of King Belshazzar, a vision appeared to me, to me Daniel, after the one that appeared to me the first time. And I realize that many of us are going to look at all of this and say, well, that's great. I'm not much of a history buff either. either. Why should I care? Why should I care? Take a look at your bulletin on the back for just a moment. Let me just give you this exciting announcement. We have the daily Bible reading on the back of the bulletin that we put out probably for close to 40 years. Okay, And I don't know how many of you are involved in that. Some are doing daily bread. Some are doing this daily Bible reading. But uh, we have come to a conclusion. Pastor Zach and I have come to a conclusion 
that we need to make sure that the Sunday sermons are connected with your daily Bible reading instead of your daily Bible reading connected with the Sunday sermons. Now, I don't know if you know what that's going to look like, but what it means is that the daily Bible reading gives you many options, many options. Number one, there's an Old Testament passage of Scripture. There's a New Testament passage of Scripture, a chapter in each. Then you have something in the Psalms, and you have something in the Proverbs. Now, the reason why we have all four of those is because I, don't, I think it was Billy Graham, I'm not sure, don't quote me on this, who decided, that, who thought that a Bible reading program oughtn't keep us out of, the old, out of the Old Testament for a very long period of time, nor should it keep us out of the New Testament for a very long period of time. And so by having an Old Testament chapter and a New Testament chapter, you're, you're not far away from the Old or the New Testament at any point. Because this Bible reading program is going to get us through the Bible, if you do it all, in a little over a year and a half. Less than a year and a half. But I think, it was, I think it was Billy Graham who also said, you can't stay out of the Psalms. You ought to be in the Psalms all the time. So we give you a psalm a day or sections of the psalm when you're in Psalm 119, like right now. And a proverb a day because you can't be out of the Proverbs for very long. It is so important for everyday living, for relationships, for, um, for everything that you can imagine on a practical level in the Christian life. And so that is why we give you a very, very, very good choice in daily Bible reading. So when you come in on Sunday morning, the Sunday morning message is going to be somehow connected with the daily Bible reading. It'll be either that New Testament passage of Scripture, that Old Testament passage of Scripture, one of the Psalms that have been assigned, or, or, or the Proverbs that have been given that day. So... The, that, that week. So you'll have read the daily Bible reading, you come in on Sunday morning, and you will have the opportunity to hear this all connected somehow. What do you think of the program? What do you think of the plan? Pretty good? We want, you, we want everybody to be involved because it helps us, it helps us to alleviate the problem that we have when we go to a passage of Scripture and we don't understand the chapters before or the chapters after. Having said that, let's see what we can make of the rest of this passage of Scripture. I saw, verse 2, in the vision, and it so happened while I was looking that I was in Shushan, the citadel. He is in the royal palace of the capital, the winter capital of the Persians. Now, it's interesting because he's still in Babylon, right? And he was transported to the capital of the Persians, the winter capital of the Persians. It was too hot in the summer for the, everybody to be there, so they left in the summer, but they spent the beautiful winters there in Shushan. And Shushan is, uh, is pretty well known. It's pretty famous. And I'm just mentioning it to you because that's where Esther was. Don loves Esther. Favorite Bible character. And that's where Esther was from. When the children of Israel returned to Israel, Nehemiah was still in Shushan, 
So Nehemiah was there until God said, you're going back to Israel. You're going back to Israel. So Shushan is a hundred and some miles west of Babylon, the capital of Babylon. And that's where the Persians, of course, uh, had centered uh, their kingdom at this point. But anyway, the Bible says that he is there in Shushan, in the, in the palace, and in the province of Elam. And I saw in the vision that I was by the river Ulai. And I don't know, you know, if you're a history buff, you're probably sitting there and you're saying, Wow, this is exciting stuff. Ula, I remember that river because it's the river that classical writers in the, in the, in the period of the, of the Greek Empire wrote much about the Ulai River. And uh, famous people like Herodotus, the historian. And, and uh, boy, this is exciting because all of this is what you're doing here is you're connecting the the truth of Scripture, the historical events of Scripture, with everyday life in the world at that time that everybody knew about. Even the secular writers make it clear that this is not fantasy. This is not make-up stuff. And so the Bible says in verse 3 that Daniel said, I lifted my eyes and I saw, and there standing beside the river was a ram. Keep that in mind because... This vision is about a ram and a goat, and um, I want you to see this clearly. I lifted my eyes and saw, and there standing beside the river was a ram which had two horns, and the two horns were high, but one was higher than the other, and the higher one came up last. Now, fortunately, Daniel is going to interpret this dream for us. And when he interprets this dream, we're going to discover that this ram is the Medes and the Persians, and the two horns represent the Medes and the Persians, and the bigger horn represents the Persians that kind of swallow up the Medes in their alliance. Now, I want you to try to picture this, you see. Daniel is trying to picture this. He's trying to put it all together, I'm sure, And then notice what it says here. I saw in verse 4 the ram pushing westward, northward, southward, so that no animal could withstand him, nor was there any that could deliver from his hand, but he did according to his will and became great. I saw the ram pushing westward, northward, southward, until the Persian Empire becomes a world empire. And, of course, history attests to that. But notice verse 5. And as I was considering, suddenly a male goat came from the west, across the surface of the whole earth, without touching the ground. Now, you can try to picture this. Here's a male male goat that is running so fast across the earth that he's not even touching the ground as if he's floating through the air. And the Bible says that this goat had a notable horn between his eyes. Are you trying to put the picture together? Then he came to the ram that had two horns, which I had seen standing beside the river, 
and ran at him with ferocious power. And I saw him confronting the ram. He was moved with rage against him, attacked the ram, and broke his two horns. And there was no power in the ram to withstand him. But he cast him down to the ground and trampled him. And there was no one that could deliver the ram from his hand. Therefore, final verse, can't do too much here. Can't get a lot more information at this point. We got some digesting to do here in a few minutes. Therefore, the male goat grew very great. But when he became strong, the large horn was broken And in place of it, four noticeable or notable ones came up toward the four winds of heaven. Now, Daniel was given this dream. We need to care about this vision because this is a vision given to the Jewish people to kind of give them information about what's going to happen in the future. I like to look at it as an intelligence briefing for the Jewish people. Think about that. An intelligence briefing for the Jewish people. But this intelligence briefing was not done by an intelligence organization. It was not done by... Uh, any earthly person, it was presented to the Jewish people by the God of the universe. And uh, I, would, uh, I would take seriously any intelligence briefing that God gives to us. Now, bear with me for just a moment because I, I really want to bring this as down to earth as I possibly can because we worry about the future We don't know what the future is going to hold. We don't know what the nations of the earth are going to do. We see wars and rumors of wars, and we all see all kinds of disruptions. Look what happened just this past week. We see all of that, and we are either encouraged by it or we're discouraged by it. But let me kind of bring it down to earth for you. Do you know that the United States, we have what we call an intelligence community, right? It's called the United States Intelligence Community. And the reason why it's called a community, because it's a group of government agencies that work together to keep America safe. And they're concerned about national security, concerned about foreign policy, and the United States Intelligence Community collects information from all of the nations on the face of the earth to give to four people, the President of the United States, the National Security Council, the Secretary of State, and the Secretary of Defense. That's their job. And other executive branch officials from time to time which in turn, of course, is shared then with others in the other branches. But I just want to say this, that the executive and legislative branches of our government oversee the intelligence community through nearly a dozen other agencies. That's just mind-boggling. In fact, I decided not to read them today, except I do want to read these, because the head of the United States intelligence community is the Office of National Intelligence, and the director of the Office of National Intelligence is 
the one who reports directly to the President of the United States, along with 16 other agencies. Now, I don't know if you're feeling any more safe by hearing that or not. I'll still put up intelligence briefings by the sovereign creator of the universe, <laughs> even with all of the overlapping that you have in these 16 other agencies. Because along with the Office of National Intelligence, you have the CIA, you have the FBI, you have the Department of Defense that has four agencies of its own. The Defense Intelligence Agency, the National Security Agency, the National Reconnaissance Office, and the National Geospatial Intelligence Agency. The branches of the military, all of them have their own intelligence agencies. The Air Force, the Army, the Coast Guard, the Marines, and the Navy. All of them. And the Department of State has its own agency. The Department of Homeland Security, the Department of Energy, the Department of the Treasury even has an Office of Terrorism and Financial Intelligence. And the Drug Enforcement Administration also has its own intelligence. See why we call it a community of U.S. intelligence? And all designed to keep us safe. Now, just bear with me for a moment. Take your Bible and turn to 2 Kings chapter 6 for a moment. Don't lose your sight. Don't lose your place there in Daniel, but go to 2 Kings. Would you do that for a minute? Because I always, always try to figure out how this stuff works in real life. And I like to compare it to the God of the universe. So let me just give you an illustration of how intelligence works from a biblical perspective, okay? I think this is, you know the story, you know the illustration here, but you're in 2 Kings chapter 6, verse 8, where the Bible says, now the king of Syria was making war against Israel. And he consulted with his servants. So here's the king of Syria, and he's consulting with his servants to make war against Israel, and they're making plans, and they're sitting down, and they're figuring out their movements, their maneuvers, where they're going to be, what they're going to do. And the Bible says that when he consulted with his servants, he said, my camp is going to be such and such a place. We're going to be here, we're going to be here, we're going to be here, we're going to be here. This is what we're going to do. But verse 9, but the man of God, and this is Elisha, by the way, and the man of God sent to the king of Israel, saying, Beware that you do not pass this place, for the Syrians are coming down there. Now, can you imagine this? And we're going to learn that every time the Syrians did this, the Israelites had the intelligence to know where they were going to be, so they knew what to do. In fact, the Bible says here in the next verse or so that it happened more many times. The implication is that didn't make any difference what the Syrians planned in secret. Israel got the intelligence and Israel decided to make their maneuvers and their plans in light of all of that. Then the king 
of Israel sent someone to the place of which the man of God had told him. Thus he warned him, and he was watchful there, not just once or twice. Therefore, the heart of the king of Syria got suspicion. He says, somebody is, somebody is telling the Israelites where we're going to be and what we're going to do. And they say, no, no, nobody is doing that. They have an intelligent, just read between the lines here. They have an intelligence organization that is so far superior to what we have that they know everything we're doing. Read between the lines because that's what you have going on. So therefore the heart of the king of Syria was greatly troubled by this thing. He called his servants and said to them, will you not show me which of us is for the king of Israel? And one of his servants said, listen, let me tell you who's ahead of their intelligence. It's Elisha. He seems to always know what we're going to do. He seems to always know where we're going to be. So what I really like, I was going to stop there, but let me continue for just a moment, okay? Because the rest of this account is really, really good. Because things don't go well for Israel, it seems. Because notice what happens here. In verse 12, it says, One of his servants says, None, of my, none, none Lord, King Elisha the prophet who is in Israel tells the king of Israel the words that you speak in your bedroom. He's getting that information somehow. We don't know how he's doing it, but he's getting it. And so he said, Go and see where he is. Go and find out where he is. And when you find out where he is, I want you to tell me. So the intelligence organization of the Syrians goes to find out where Elijah is, Elisha is. And when they go and find out where Elijah is, they find out he's in Dothan. And he says he's in Dothan. So the king of Syria sends his army to Dothan. And the Bible says he completely surrounds the city of Dothan. Completely surrounds the city of Dothan. Notice in verse 14, Therefore he sent horses and chariots and a great army there, and they came by night and surrounded the city. And when the servant of the man of God arose early and went out, there was an army surrounding the city with horses and chariots, and he was really, really, really shocked by it all and said, We're done. What are we going to do? Alas, we're done. We're defeated. Syria has completely surrounded us. And Elisha, what does Elisha say to him? Elisha says, do not fear, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. And Elisha prayed and said, Lord, I pray, open his eyes that he may see. And the Lord opened the eyes of the young man, and what did he see? He saw the mountains full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. Look. Look in the heavens. What do you see? I see more angels than I can possibly imagine protecting us. That's how intelligence works in the Bible. That's how it works in the Bible. And so uh, I just, you know, Daniel gives us the opportunity to be a fly on the wall. Now, I'm going to conclude in a, in a couple minutes because it doesn't take long to come to a, a, what I think is a really great application. It's not going to help you spiritually when it comes to your, uh, your personal walk with the Lord, I don't think, when it comes to dealing with temptation and sin and, 
and all of that. But boy, I think the application here is incredible. Now, I just want to say this first of all to you, that this history that we are looking at here today is described for us in verses 15 and following. Because Gabriel, the angel, is the one who comes and gives the interpretation to Daniel. It happened when I, Daniel 15, we'll just read this, then I'll make a couple of comments. When it happened, then it happened when I, Daniel, had seen the vision and was seeking the meaning that suddenly there stood before me one having the appearance of a man. And I heard a man's voice between the banks of the Uli River who called and said, Gabriel, make this man understand the vision. So he came near where I stood, and when he came, I was afraid and fell on my face. But he said to me, understand, son of man, the vision refers to the time of the end, the end of this segment of history. And then, of course, it'll go on into what has not yet been fulfilled, and we're going to look at that. But today, we're looking at the end of this particular time of indignation. Verse 18, now as he was speaking with me, I was in a deep sleep with my face to the ground, but he touched me and stood me upward, and he said, look, I am making known to you what shall happen in the latter time of the indignation, for at the appointed time the end shall be. The ram, everybody together, let's read this, there's only two verses here. The ram which you saw having the two horns, they are the kings of the Media and Persia. No question, there it is. Everybody, 21. And the male goat is the kingdom of Greece. The large horn that is between his eyes is the first king. Now, 22 is going to tell us that the first king, the horn was broken and four others rose in its place. Let me just simply say this to you. It takes a minute to do this. But there are five prophecies here, five prophecies that have been fulfilled between the Old and the New Testament. Because after the, after the Persians take over, and then after, after the Persians take over, 200 years later, the Greeks take over. And the person that is being referred to here, as far as the male goat is concerned, is Alexander the Great. He is well known in ancient history. You don't have to, I, you, you know, when I was a kid in ancient history, I remember ancient history because uh, Mr. Capo was my teacher. And I went, I hate to say this, uh, kids, uh, those of you who are in school, but I didn't get to attend that big high school up there in the valley. A big high school that we had was up on the hill, which is the junior high. I attended downtown, and we walked from our building downtown to the Carnegie Library and back, and there was the Cameron School, and there was the school there at Fairview. And I remember, I remember my history book. My history book was called Out of the Past, and I'm halfway to the library, and Mr. Capo wants to make sure we all have our books. And I said, Mr. Capo, I forgot my book. I left it in my class. And he said, run, go get your book, come. The only reason I'm sharing that with you is because when you look at outstanding P personalities in ancient history, Alexander the Great stands out. He's heads above everybody else. Five prophecies here, quickly. Number one, the Bible says he came from the west. All of the other empires came from the east. Greece came from the west. Number two, the Bible says that without touching the ground, he came as a goat, flying. Alexander flew so fast across the world. In 13 years, he had it pretty well conquered. And he had everything conquered for the Mediterranean Sea all the way to India. 
and he was back in Babylon before it was all said and done. Thirteen years. Number three, a notable horn between his eyes. I actually, there's six. In, in verse six, the Bible says, he ran at him, he ran at the ram with furious power. Darius the Mede saw him conquering city after city, going along the coastline, taking city after city. And Darius, the king of the Medes, the Persians, said, I want to negotiate. No negotiation. With lightning speed, Alexander the Great took everything in sight. It was ferocious. It was like an angry goat raging against the ram. And then the Bible says in verse 8 that the Melgrode grew very great. Yes, became the world empire of that day. Fulfilling God's purpose, by the way. Do you realize that it was God's purpose to create the Greek empire so that everybody would speak the same language? And then when the Romans took over the Greece, there would be a Roman peace with the culture of Greece and the Roman peace where the world could hear the gospel. Do you realize that that was, that was part of God's plan and purpose? And so it's happening right here. And the Bible says that the large horn was broken in place and four noticeable ones came up toward the four winds of the heavens. And those of you who know ancient history, shaking your head and say, yeah, that's exactly right. Alexander the Great died when he was only 33, I believe it was, 33 years of age. He died of a fever in Babylon, and his four generals then took and divided the empire between the four of them. Wow. I find that incredible. I'll tell you what else I find incredible as far as this intelligent briefing is concerned. This is God's plan. This is God's purpose, and the Jewish people have to accept it. It's interesting, because when it came time to conquer Jerusalem, Alexander refused to do it. His generals even said, I don't understand this. You're conquering everything, but you won't conquer Jerusalem. Why won't you conquer Jerusalem? Because he believed that God, now he's a secular person in history, but he believed that God had given him the purpose and plan to spare the Jewish people. Oh, the story is fascinating. I'll have to tell you someday. When he got to the city of Jerusalem, they welcomed him. He welcomed them. He gave them whatever they needed, whatever freedom they wanted. The story is fascinating. But this is Alexander the Great. By the way, I just want to say this to you. This is going to be in closing now because I've got to wrap it up. Let me just go to one, one simple application here. By the way, when Alexander the Great was in Jerusalem at the temple, you know what the priest at the temple did? He took a scroll with the book of Daniel in it and showed Alexander the Great this passage of Scripture that we just read today. Talk about, talk about connection. He showed him that passage of Scripture, and Alexander the Great said, well, I'll tell, I'm paraphrasing what he said. As he says, well, he says, you know, he says, that makes sense based on what I feel that the Lord, your, the God of Israel, wants me to do. 
He showed him that path. Oh, by the way, let me simply say this to you. If you're one of those that questions all of this, there are lots of people who read this and they say, oh, this history, this is history is so impeccably true, and it gets truer when we go through 10, 11, and 12. The details are incredible. You and I will look at it and say, oh, there's no way in the world that anybody can know that kind of prophecy. Who can have that kind of intelligence? God of the universe can. But you know, you know what unbelievers do? You know what, you know what skeptics do? You know what critics do? They say, Daniel didn't write this. Before it happened, it was written after it happened. <laughs> well, let me simply say this. If it was written after it happened, why did, uh, why did uh, they show Alexander the Great... The passage in Daniel. And by the way, I just want to say this to you. I brought this with me. I wasn't going to bring it, but I thought, eh, maybe I'll use it. This is a secular history book. Josephus. Secular history book. You want to read all about Alexander's campaigns? You want to read about how he came to Jerusalem? You want to read about what he said, his lengthy statement as to why he didn't destroy Jerusalem? right in here in a secular history book. God's Word, God the sovereign creator of this universe has an intelligence <laughs> manual that's beyond anything we can put together that gives us everything we need to know as far as the future is concerned. No, not little details. Doesn't tell us about little details in this day and age in which we're living. But all the big details are right here. And you and I have enough intelligence in God's Word to know what the future is going to hold and what we're to do about it. Amen? Amen. And gracious Lord, thank you for your plan and your purpose for all of us. Thank you for your plan of salvation. And we pray that as we look to you, and as we trust you, and as we seek your intelligence in all of this, that we will be greatly encouraged by what your plans are for us in the future. In your precious and holy name we pray. Amen. Everybody standing as we close the service this morning. And we sing in our hymn book one stanza of this great song. One stanza of this great song. Um, what's the page number? What is it? 312? 312. Let's sing it together. If you don't know the Lord, will you come to Him? If you don't know Christ, will you say, Lord, save me from all of my sin? I believe that you died on the cross for me. I believe that you paid the penalty for my sin. Please save me by my faith. I receive you as my Savior. Everybody together, 312 as we close the service.